Will you come in, Miss Wonderley? Won't you sit down, Miss Wanley? Thank you. I inquired at the hotel for the name of a reliable private detective. They mentioned yours. Suppose you tell me about it from the very beginning. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to eventually the present year. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are on our penultimate film for 1941, The Maltese Falcon. We did it, David. We made it to The Maltese Falcon. We did. But wait, don't we have two movies yet to watch? Oh, damn, you're right. We do. I got excited. I thought I was <laughs> screwing up penultimate again. <laughs> Yeah, a thing that we do every year. No, you're right. We have two more. So it's actually just the seventh. Yeah. Which is not that exciting. Uh, Well, it is exciting in the sense that it's the Maltese Falcon and it's a good movie again. Yeah. This year has definitely not been chock full of them. And we were very front loaded with Citizen K. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that I sort of feel bad about is saying of last week's Bengal answered movie that it's a shaggy dog story and like leaving it at that because this is also a shaggy dog story about like the most famous MacGuffin in history, but also this movie rules (laughs) because that means it's just a style exercise and it's such a good style exercise. I mean, I don't know if you can call something that results in multiple murders a shaggy dog story. Yeah, but most of those characters are murdered like two scenes after they're established as human beings. It's not like a formal shaggy dog story, but honestly, most of the plot of this does not matter. That's definitely true. It's a very character driven movie and it establishes a whole lot of archetypes for basically all film noir going forward. It's interesting, actually, because this is considered by a lot of people to be the first big film noir movie, which I find fascinating because we've definitely already watched film noir movies. Yeah, but like, I I definitely think... They weren't necessarily good. (laughs) Yeah, I think this clicks together better then was it Wagon Train or is Wagon Train the TV show? Wagon Train is definitely the TV show. I think that you're thinking of Stagecoach. I am thinking of Stagecoach, which tells you a little something about Stagecoach. But in that same way that it really locked into place a bunch of archetypes and a bunch of signifiers of the Western, even though we'd watched like three or four Westerns before, Mm -hmm. this really locks into place. Oh, this is what a noir movie is for the next like 80 years. Yeah, I mean, Brick is still influenced by this movie so very, very transparently and is also a style exercise. And is also great. So, yeah, I mean, the movie that I was thinking of that we've watched that is still definitely a noir movie and also has Humphrey Bogart in it would be Dead End, but it's not quite figured out the style. And there was a little too much other stuff in Dead End. Yeah. And this really pairs it down to the detective and the gangsters and the femme fatale who's playing both sides. That is a really good example of, I don't know, I don't know if I brought it up on this podcast, but a thing I talk about a lot just in my life is that at the end of the 19th century, 
there were all of these physics papers that would walk right up to all of these weird things about the nature of gravity and light and would kind of go like, and a thing that would solve it is if the speed of light was some sort of universal constant. Anyway, that's not within scope. I'm just not going to try and make that a thing. <laughs> I think that a lot of the proto-noirs that we have watched have that same thing. Dead End has this noir plot line, but it's like, ah, oh, but I want it to be a man on the street movie around that, about what it means to be poor and living in tenements. Right. And Alibi kind of had some of the lighting, but it wasn't willing to go there on the moral gray areas. Right. It was an extremely boring cops and robbers movie that <laughs> looked like a noir film. This is the first thing that puts it all together and is just like, there's going to be a woman. She's going to be hot, but she's going to murder people. There's going to be a guy. He's a detective, but he's a real piece of work. <laughs> and the cops don't really like him, but the cops are also bumbling idiots. This just goes full on into everything that becomes a cliche about noir. And it's really satisfying for that. Because every new character that walks in the door, you're like, who's this guy? His eyes are weird. I'm loving this. <laughs> I would say that when it comes to cliches, and I don't know that this is a universally held opinion, but I do find that the film noir cliches, for me, are just delightful and never irritating. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was like, oh, I forgot how sexist noir heroes all are 100% of the time and had to get into that. But it also helps that this is not a noir movie where you're supposed to like Sam Spade very much. You're not really supposed to like our lead. Right. He's our point of view into this world. But everybody who meets him seems to think he's kind of a piece of shit, except for murderers. Yeah. But I feel like for me, that is a quintessential part of noir, is that the private detective or whoever's doing that role, whether they're officially a private detective or not, is always a real piece of work. And they're not necessarily a good guy. They just happen to be your POV, you know? I think that is certainly true of the vast majority of noir, but I think it becomes one of those Xerox of a Xerox things where in the last scene, there's this line. I think the line is, don't be so sure I'm as bad as I pretend to be. That's this head fake toward uh, maybe there's actually a moral core to this guy that becomes that annoying cop show cliche of like, yeah, they're bad, but they're who we need in this bad world. And it's like, no, he's just kind of an asshole who's out for himself. Right. I, again, really like this movie and like weirdly don't in the way that we have for some other sort of genre defining films want to blame it for the rest of the noir genre, you know? Right. But there were definitely moments for me of like, oh, I don't like this film. <laughs> that didn't necessarily take me out of the film, but definitely made me go, right, I need to get back on this film's wavelength because I'm not naturally on this film's wavelength. I've got to go with it in that direction. You do have to kind of embrace that, I think. I mean, 
Is Sam Spade super sexist? Absolutely. But also, like, we're kind of expecting that from the beginning. And I think one of the things that's actually kind of a complicating factor there, which I enjoyed, is that is he awful to every woman in his life? No. Does that mean he's not a total chauvinist? No. Because he does have a very good relationship and repartee with his secretary, assistant, whatever, Effie. Even if it is somewhat patriarchal. (laughs) I was about to say, I mean, he does call her by, like, diminutive nicknames at the best of times. Yeah, but he uses them on literally everybody, and he treats her quite differently than he does the other people he refers to as precious and sweetheart, which I notice he actually calls literally every woman that he interacts with in this film. (laughs) Yeah, there's kind of a, like, money, penny, and bond thing where there's a level of respect there he does not show other women. But boy, are we not setting a particularly high bar for him to clear with that. No. The bar that clears is, she is the one woman he doesn't threaten to turn over to the police for murder. Right. While simultaneously (laughs) banging. Right. I did think repeatedly through this, how did this get past the Hays Code? Because it's extremely clear very early in the film that Sam Spade has been sleeping with his partner's wife. And is never punished. Yeah, I guess they were like, it's good enough she's punished for it by sleeping with Sam Spade? (laughs) That's the only thing I can think of? (laughs) Wow. Wow. You know, I don't know that that's a punishment? Question mark? I... Uh, I mean, having any sort of expectations of a relationship would certainly be a punishment, but I don't know. It seems like he's probably pretty good in the sack. I I mean, sure. Probably not long term. Yeah. He's kind of hot. So should we talk about the plot of this film? Yeah. I mean, I watched this three or four days ago, and I'm going to be honest, a little bit of the twists and turns in Act 2, I'm like, eh, I don't care. Act one is classic femme fatale walks into a private detective's office and her name is, what's her first name? Ruth Wonderly. It's such a good name. Right, but isn't that name fake, though? Because he eventually figures out her real name is O'Shaughnessy, right? Yeah, that's her fake name. Ruth Wonderly is a great fake name, though. Yes. Spade is kind of into her. His partner is super into her. And she wants them to tail a guy named Floyd Thursby, which is also a great noir name. All of the names in here really stack up there. Like Sam Spade. And Miles Archer, who's Sam Spade's partner, who, spoiler alert, is about to get unceremoniously killed like one scene after he's introduced. That is sort of the driving dramatic incident, is Spade trying to figure out who killed his partner. And who killed Floyd Thursby. Right. Who dies the same night. Especially because the cops, both out of laziness and out of like, well, I mean, who the fuck else is it, are trying to pin it on Sam Spade. There's a pretty decent argument that it would be him, given that he was sleeping with his partner's wife And seems like a really morally questionable guy, like, in eight different ways. So he is on the case about that and goes with his first lead, who is, of course, the femme fatale that wandered into his office. Ooh, I just realized why this got past the Hayes Code. Okay. So Archer's wife, 
Mm-hmm. There is no adultery portrayed on screen. The only time that we see them physically interact is after her husband is dead. God, that probably is it, too. It totally is. And she does have that one line about how he said if it weren't for her being married, they would be together. Right. Which I took as like they were sleeping and she was going to leave him. Yeah. Oh, totally. I guess you could interpret as they have this smoldering- I never touched her. (laughs) Right. Which- Bullshit. Bullshit. But okay. There's sort of these twists and turns about Ruth Wonderly turning out to be Bridget O'Shaughnessy. There's a great sequence where Sam Spade evades a guy that's tailing him and like tricks him into going into this apartment building. But the big thing is somebody shows up in his office and is Peter Laurie. <laughs> As Joel Cairo, another great noir name. And starts talking about this black figure of a bird, the Maltese Falcon. And you're like, oh shit, that's the name of this movie. That's probably a big deal. <laughs> Yes. The other thing that makes it kind of a big deal is suddenly this goes from like a nickel and dime operation where Sam Spade's getting paid like 20, 30 bucks, something like that. That's enough money to keep his mouth shut about some morally questionable activities to people telling him that they'd give him $5,000. Which again, 1941 $5,000. Sam Spade very clearly does not want $5,000 worth of trouble on his doorstep. And goes through this period of trying to figure out where this fucking bird is just to not have to deal with it, essentially. In that, he meets another MacGuffin-y guy named Gutman who gives him the backstory of the Maltese Falcon, which is essentially that the Knights Templar were trying to give it to Charles V of Spain. It got taken by pirates. And then even though it's this jewel-encrusted figurine underneath, it got this black wax coating. Enamel. Enamel. Yeah. And was traded around Europe and beyond without anybody ever understanding what it really was. And Gutman and Cairo and O'Shaughnessy have all been on this years-long quest to find the Falcon. And they believe that it's finally arrived on this ship. In San Francisco, which, by the way, this all takes place in San Francisco, and it's an extremely actually San Francisco movie, (laughs) and not just, like, the San Francisco skyline. Except that they have a lot of cabs, which may have been true then, but definitely is not true now. Yeah, I mean, for that part of town, there's still a decent number of cabs, but yes... Basically, I don't know, do you want to take over here? Because this is honestly the part where the guy wanders in and just drops the Maltese Falcon on Spade's doorstep. I'm kind of like, wait, what? Why? Yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly clear on why the ship's captain knows to go to Spade's office, but he does because it's necessary. So, yeah, Spade goes to find the ship that the Maltese Falcon is supposed to be on. The ship is on fire. He goes back to his office. The ship's captain staggers into his office holding this newspaper-wrapped bundle, drops it on the floor, and then dies. Effie calls the cops. Effie, his assistant. The story that she's telling the cops is just that this guy stumbled in, and not to mention anything about the Falcon, but otherwise to give the story exactly. Then Sam goes to the hotel where Joel Cairo is staying, which is this really posh hotel, and he checks the bundle 
gets a coat check card. Yeah. Claim ticket. Claim ticket. Thank you. Puts it in an envelope, addresses it to his own P.O. box, and drops it in the mail immediately. So he has no way of getting it back. I mean, I'm pretty sure if he went up and was like, I lost my claim check ticket, they would give him his weird newspaper-wrapped bundle. Because who else checked a newspaper-wrapped bundle? Anyway, Bridget calls the office. Effie picks up. Bridget gives him this address and then screams and then the line goes dead. Sam goes to the address, but it ends up not being anything. Like, it's just some warehouse area of town where there's nothing there. And he's smart, so he's like, nope, I'm gonna get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) He gets home, and of course, Bridget is in the doorway. He walks in and finds Gutman, Joel Cairo, and the guy who's been tailing him, who is sort of the gunman for Gutman. Gutman says... Look, I'll give you 10 grand for the Falcon. Sam says that's not enough because somebody still has to go down for the murder of Thursby and his partner and suggests the gunman kid who tries to escape, but then they knock him out. Sam calls his secretary and says, go to the P.O. box, get this claim check and go get this thing. She brings the bundle to his house. Everybody unwraps it. And Gutman is so excited to break into the enamel and find all of the gold and jewels underneath. So he takes a knife and starts trying to scratch away the enamel. And it turns out that it's a fake and it's just made out of lead. At some point, I feel like the gunman kid does escape, but maybe it doesn't really matter. (laughs) He's such an unimportant character. Well, this is deep into why I kind of called this a shaggy dog story, because like The start of this is a femme fatale walks into the office and the end of this is the femme fatale did it. So, yeah, Gutman and Kyra decide that they're going to go to Istanbul because where else would anything be except in Istanbul (laughs) (laughs) to try to find the Maltese Falcon? Sam calls the cops and says, hey, this is where they're going. You'll know where to find them as soon as they leave. And then he confronts Bridget, and in one of those classic noir moments where he's figured it all out and tells it to her, (laughs) realizes that she's actually the one who killed his partner in order to implicate Thursby so that the heat would be taken off of her. Then he has this whole speech about how he's going to turn her over to the cops and hopefully they'll just give her life in prison. So 20 years from now, she'll get out and he'll be waiting for her if she's a good girl. And he hopes that they don't hang her by her pretty neck because then he'll miss her. She begs him, of course, not to turn her in, but he does anyway because he's a hard-boiled badass. It is wild that you are supposed to read him as actually in love with her for that monologue. Because <laughs> that monologue works so much better if he is just a heartless bastard. <laughs> Oh, I in no way read that as he was actually in love with her. The Wikipedia summary says, despite his feelings for her. And I think I've seen that read several places. But, like, that's definitely not the only read of that scene that you can do. It's probably the least interesting one. It's way more interesting if he's kind of suspected or known all along. And was like, eh, but she's hot. (laughs) Like I say, I don't think Shaggy Dog is the right thing here. But like, what is going on here is that is a good summary of the plot. And two thirds of that was completely unimportant. And it leaves out like all these little character details that are what's actually fun about the movie. 
the minor gunman character who's just constantly getting dunked on by Sam Spade <laughs> and hates it is such a fun little character. This, like, lived-in weird relationship that Gutman and Cairo and O'Shaughnessy all have that's this pre-existing relationship of chasing the Falcon that Sam Spade has just wandered into is so fun and interesting, and all three of them are, like, not recognizably human beings. All three of them are absurd, <laughs> but they're all really interesting. I definitely think that Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet are playing caricatures. Mary Astor is sometimes playing a caricature, and then sometimes is playing a different one. And the way that she is able to flip between the sweet, innocent sister who's just worried that her sister's getting involved with a bad guy to, I've gotten myself tied up in some bad things because I've been a bad girl, to fast-talking badass who is definitely a career criminal when she's finally reunited with Gutman and Cairo is amazing. Mary Astor is doing God's work in this movie. She is just incredible, and she manages to turn on that dime in a way that is believable as someone who is a great actor, and not that any of those individual characters are necessarily real. I think that she is still existing in this exaggerated noir universe, but you are right to single her out as doing something much harder than this one person. There's some great character actor work from everybody, but she is rotating through like four different character actor roles throughout the movie. And she's nailing all of them. Yeah. A lot of the time when you have an actor who is given this kind of part where they have to play multiple different things... There's one that's kind of weak or one that's very strong and the rest are not that impressive. But to have her really do it and to switch on a dime. I mean, we're talking about within a scene, within a shot. Yeah. And for all of it to be really crystal clear and very differentiated is very, very impressive. And I don't think I've seen that in any of the movies that we've watched for this project before. And it's rare to actually see it at all. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen some movies where that was what the role demanded and we just didn't get it in... Like every Betty Davis role. <laughs> the letter. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, yes. That's what basically every Betty Davis role is supposed to be. And, like, one of the reasons I do like the read of the last scene where Sam Spade really has no emotional attachment to her at all is that if that's supposed to be the real her, that doesn't really land at all. That it's both of them trying to play each other, he just has the better hand. Right. Jives much more with the performance she's giving. And also that she doesn't know any other weapon than to play a role that will be somehow impressive or sympathetic to a man who has power over her. Yeah. Yeah, her hand is just not good. And for her to fail is sort of necessary, I think, for that scene to be interesting. I think if there was any sort of great torture on his part where he was like, I'll be waiting for you in 20 years if you're a good girl. And if they hang you, we'll all miss you. Would suck. Yeah. It would be so schmaltzy. I think people like it because then they get a like, oh, this was so tough for him ending. Where instead it's just like, 
not wasn't really tough for him. What's interesting about that ending is it turns out okay for him because he doesn't actually care about the Maltese Falcon. Like it is this cursed object that has destroyed the lives of Cairo and Gutman who are going to chase it across the globe like insane people until they die. O'Shaughnessy's going to jail. Wilmer's going to be on the run and has lost his father figure. Archer is dead. Thursby's dead. Spade is the only one that turned out okay because every time he had an opportunity to get the Maltese Falcon, he was like, I don't want this thing. Somebody take it away from me. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, if he ended up getting paid the 10 grand or whatever that he was going to get from selling it, quote unquote, to Gutman, no harm, no foul. Yeah. But he doesn't want the thing itself. Yeah. There's this great bit where after it turns out it's a fake, Gutman's like, I want my money back. And Wilmer has his gun out, but Spade has disarmed a guy holding a gun at him like four times in the movie already. So you think it's going to be another dominance play. And instead he just hands him back nine bills and goes like, this is for my time. And is just perfectly happy to let the money go. Yeah. Which is great. This is a movie of great little details. The actual murder mystery? Who cares? Like you knew Miles Archer for two minutes before he got shot. You know, because this is a noir story, the sexy woman with dark hair probably did it. I don't think we even ever see Thursby. No, you don't. The cops just tell Spade. There's like two other murders you also don't see. You just find out about because the cops just like have this increasing body count they're coming to Sam Spade with. It is so many small moments like that first scene with Cairo coming into Spade's office that has all these little moments of Spade steals the gun, gives it back. There's so many small moments of who sort of has power in a scene shifting in interesting ways Mm -hmm, that ultimately don't matter at all, (laughs) but matter because they're entertaining to the audience. Yeah, it's like sports. Yeah. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who has the ball, but if the ball doesn't change hands, it's a boring match. Or a game or whatever type of sport we're talking about. It makes for great entertainment. It also has really good cinematography. It's definitely not the first movie to establish noir cinematography, but it is the first noir film we've seen that has noir cinematography consistently. A lot of great light and shadow. A lot of interesting shots. Like, there's one where when Sam first meets Gutman, they follow him through all of Gutman's apartment or hotel suite. It doesn't really matter. I'm not clear on which one it is. And they walk through the living room and the parlor and the hallway and then end up sitting in the drawing room or whatever. And it's just this one continuous shot that it's not a trick, it's not showy, but it's something that we haven't really seen before, is that long time shot. Except maybe in some Toland work. I was kind of shocked to look up halfway through this movie that Greg Toland didn't do cinematography for it. It's that thing we kept expecting to happen through the 30s, where like, Well, everyone watched it happened one night, right? Like, everybody's going to figure out how to make a Frank Capra movie. And then nobody does. And like, oh, somebody figured out how to do what Greg Toland does besides Greg Toland. And like, to actually push it in an interesting direction. Yeah. I'm not going to say this is better cinematography than Citizen Kane, but it pushes the... Just like the characters have this, like, edge of unreality, this exaggerated edge to them... 
it pushes that naturalistic lighting through the window thing that Greg Toland does into a completely absurd, light does not work this way at all, but it feels like it should direction. You know, I think that's probably because Arthur Edison, who was the cinematographer for The Maltese Falcon, he did the cinematography for Frankenstein a really good one yeah and then also for some other horror movies and i think that he wasn't quite as constrained by the idea of what is artistry as much as how do we get the drama in an unreal world which is what you know frankenstein and the invisible man are they're unreal worlds yeah also though like imagine doing the cinematography for frankenstein the maltese falcon and fucking casablanca and not having everyone on Earth know your name. <laughs> yes. I, that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> How is that even possible? Yeah. Did he, like, fuck up really badly personally where people were like, let's just never speak of him again? God, I hope not. Yeah. I hope he's not canceled. Because, <laughs> God, what do, you, what do you have to do in the 1940s to get canceled? <laughs> Christ. He also did the cinematography for All Quiet on the Western Front, which had some of the best cinematography. Still, to me, there are shots from that movie that stand out. Yeah, all right. He also did In Old Arizona, but... Uh, Everybody gets one. Yeah, you know, sometimes he had a house payment, you know what I mean? Like, just just let him have it. (laughs) Though he apparently won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for In Old Arizona, basically because he was able to not have the giant outdoor microphones in the shots. I will say, my problem with that movie is not the cinematography, it's all of the acting. (laughs) It's all of the dialogue and all of the acting. Yeah. Well, and the sound is fucking terrible. It has terrible sound. I mean, I know that it was a very early talkie and they were like, let's do this outside instead of on a soundstage, which was a terrible idea. But yeah, that movie is awful. Anyway, let's never speak of it again. Hooray. Which is what we say every time we bring it up. Uh, let's rate this movie, though, so we don't keep talking about it right now. Ah, uh, I'm really stumped on where in the 8 to 10 range this goes. I am, too, because judging by what it is, which is a very tight film noir, mm-hmm. it's a perfect that, right? Yeah. But judging by all movies ever, it's not a 10. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. That's the problem is I have this resistance to give it a 10, but can't really, like, give my thing that is wrong with it that makes it not a 10, you know? I mean, it's got some major plot holes. Like, why does the captain of the ship get shot and then walk miles to stumble into the office of a private detective he's never heard of to deliver the most precious cargo in existence? As far as he knows. That's fair. And also why do like people keep coming to Sam Spade just in general? Right. Is a big question. Like why Cairo thinks he's got it. But like, I I don't know. That to me is just like trying to critique the performances in this movie of like, yeah, but that's the world we're in. It is this world where there is a weird miscommunication to the way they just go through the world. That makes it work okay for me. But like, yes, you're right. The mystery doesn't really make sense. 
you do get the sense in that last scene that Spade knew it was her from, like, the word go, in which case, why did he not turn her in from, like, the word go? Right. Again, it's a style exercise. It's just a really good style exercise. And I feel weird going like, well, the cap on that is an eight. But I also feel weird in the year Citizen Kane came out going like, I mean, this is the same as Citizen Kane, right? Because it's... It's It's not the same as Citizen Kane. Um, eight or nine. mm. Okay, so I'm going to go for a nine. Okay. Because in the way that Citizen Kane changed cinema writ large forever, the Maltese Falcon cemented an entire genre and did it well in a way that is entertaining and not just laid out the framework in the way that Stagecoach did. Stagecoach gives you the wireframe, but I didn't find it to be at all entertaining. Yeah. And the Maltese Falcon gives you the wireframe and also is really entertaining and is artistically shot in a way that's also genre-defining. Like, all the pieces are there for, hey, here you go, everybody. Here's the template forever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm with you. I'll do a nine. Um, And I will also say, watch this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. It holds up. The sexism doesn't, but, like, it's not really supposed to. He's supposed to be an ass. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think that the movie is sexist. Sam Spade is sexist, but Bridget, for example, seems to be wholly in on the Maltese Falcon theft with Cairo and Gutman. And definitely has more power than Wilmer, the gunman guy, who's a guy. (laughs) I mean, she seems to be kind of an equal partner in this. I think that's true. I think this movie knows the female characters in it get a raw deal, which is another thing later noir movies maybe forget sometimes. Yeah. Yet another reason why I don't like the read that there is an actual love between the two of them in that last scene. Because if there is, whoo, boy, that's rough. The shit he's saying to her. I don't think there is, and I don't think she thinks there is. Yeah. I think she's trying to get him to feel that way and then realizes that she's lost. Yeah. So next week. Next week we watch the movie that's apparently better than Citizen Kane. How Green Was My Valley. You know, David, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I may eat my words next week. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm going to guess it's not better than Citizen Kane. Just throwing it out there. Just this is my prediction. I also think that, like, it's always so tough when you have one of those years. This movie didn't ask for the Academy to, like, make one of the most famously bad decisions of its history. (laughs) I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's like a solid double of an Oscar bait movie or something, you know? It's not its fault that it came out in the Citizen Kane year and then the Academy was like, I don't know. I like that. (laughs) I like Citizen Kane okay, but like, come on. That's true. It's not the movie's fault. I'm not blaming the movie. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, probably not better than Citizen Kane. Yeah. Poster sucks though. So yeah, it's not for certain bad. And like, I, I could see it being good. There's some actors in it we've liked okay. I don't know. The the shots of this weird industrial town look pretty cool on the Wikipedia page. It could be fine. And it's John Ford who's hit or miss with us. Yeah, but his cinematography is usually pretty solid. Well, I mean, his cinematography for Grapes of Wrath was solid because it was Greg Toland. (laughs) That's fair. And he doesn't... Yeah, it's not Greg Toland this time. All right, we'll see. But yeah, until then, 
this was a noir thriller. Yeah, yeah, it was. Oh, I don't even have a good joke for it. No, I was totally unprepared to joke about this movie, which I guess tells you something. <laughs> yeah, that actually does. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Take it over. You've got till five o'clock. And you're either in or out. Or keeps. <laughs>